Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative conversation on vaping-related acute parenchymal lung injury. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Andrea Jonas as our guest, and we'll be discussing Dr. Jonas's article entitled, Vaping-Related Acute Parenchymal Lung Injury, A Systematic Review. Uh, so, Andrea, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm really delighted to be here today. My name is Andrea Jonas. I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Stanford University, and my interest is in studying diffuse parenchymal lung diseases, particularly smoking-related ILDs. Great, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I really enjoyed your paper. It was very informative, and I learned a great deal. So let's go ahead and get started, and maybe you can tell us why you performed the systematic review, and for the benefits of our audience, maybe you could just discuss some of the terminology that you used in your paper about vaping pens, e-cigarettes, e-hookers, so that they know um, uh, what exactly we're we discussing. Absolutely. Now, when we talk about vaping-related lung disease, we really have to go to a pre-COVID mindset, which I know for many of us feels like a lifetime ago. But in the summer of 2019, we started hearing reports of this new mysterious respiratory illness that would come to be known as EVALI or e-cig or vaping product use associated acute lung injury. Nivali was primarily affecting young vape users, and in some cases, the presentation would be very severe and, and could be fatal. At that point in time, several informative case reports were being produced, and the CDC had just started its investigation. However, no review had yet compiled all the existing literature that had been performed to date. Parallel to this, we were really motivated by the fact that vaping has grown in popularity over the last decade, and it's currently the most common way for youth to consume tobacco. Yearly surveys of high school students show that the prevalence of vape use has steadily increased over the last few years, and currently a quarter of high school seniors are vaping. Many of these young people will continue to use nicotine for years to come, and they'll either continue vaping or they may transition to conventional cigarette use. We really saw an opportunity to contribute to our understanding as a, as a medical community of the impact of vaping on respiratory health and providing a, a comprehensive review of EVALI from last July would really be that first key step in building a foundation of knowledge. Now, when we talk about vaping, there's a wide variety of ways that people use um, vape aerosols, and it includes, as you said, the vape pen, e-cigarettes, e-hookahs, um, and a wide variety of different devices that have been produced on the market. And this will continue to evolve as patterns of behavior evolve. So it, it just highlights the need for clinicians to stay abreast of what our, what our patients, especially our young patients, are doing so we know how the respiratory health might be impacted for generations to come. Great. So how did you perform your systematic review? And uh, were there any other reviews uh, on this topic prior? 
Great question. At the time that we published our work, there had been a number of reviews of the basic science underlying lung injury from vape aerosol exposure, but no review had really yet focused predominantly on the clinical manifestations of of Evoli and the Evoli outbreak. We found that there are a number of case reports and case series, and some of those case series were quite large and included several dozen patients. However, there was no literature yet that really looked at the entire cohort of patients and captured the entire spectrum of vaping-related lung disease. We suspected that there, that there would be a wide variety of presentations, and we wanted to describe how the cases reported prior to July 2019 differed from the, at that time, ongoing Evoli outbreak. So in our work, we really took a very comprehensive view of the literature and, and incorporated all the case reports going back to 2012, as well as, as folding in some of the basic science literature that evaluated the impact of vaping. Our goal was to ultimately produce an integrated report that would be informative for frontline clinicians. Great. And uh, I think the focus on the clinical manifestations was particularly relevant, as you already alluded to. There were a number of deaths in young patients, and it was very surprising, especially since um, vaping had been uh, posited as a safer alternative to uh, cigarettes. Um, So I think this review was very timely. So maybe you could go ahead and give us your findings uh, about uh, what the clinical manifestations were and uh, what the patients presented with. Happily. So in our, in our work, we compiled, compiled clinical findings from over 200 cases of vaping-related lung injury, and the majority of those cases were associated with the 2019 Evoli outbreak. From that Evoli outbreak cohort, so really looking at those patients who presented from July to September of 2019, we found that the majority of patients were young, between the ages of 19 and 35, and predominantly male. Most patients had been vaping for several months, averaging about 10 months, and it was predominantly THC and or nicotine use, with THC being a cannabinoid product. Most common symptoms that patients were coming in with were about a week of cough, dyspnea, constitutional symptoms, fevers, chills, and interestingly, GI distress and abdominal pain was found in about three-quarters of patients, um, which we, we thought was an unexpected finding. Making the diagnosis of Evoli really hinged on the correct clinical history combined with chest imaging, and that most commonly included a a CT scan that would show diffuse bilateral ground glass opacities. I'd say that BAL was not required to make the diagnosis, but it was commonly performed, and that was mostly to exclude infectious etiologies. Notably, lipid-laden macrophages were found commonly in these patients, and that early on raised the question of whether or not the pattern of injury fit with a lipoid pneumonia picture. Some of these patients did proceed with getting a transbronchial or surgical lung biopsy, and those biopsies were really not in keeping, however, with a lipoid pneumonia pattern. And instead, we were finding that there were features more consistent with organizing pneumonia and other nonspecific inflammatory features on histopathology. For the patients who were impacted by Evoli, their outcomes were generally quite favorable. The majority of patients did survive to discharge. However, as you mentioned, there were notably patients who required ECMO, and 3% of patients captured in our systematic review did die. 
uh, supportive care was really the mainstay of treatment, and steroids were used in the majority of these patients who required hospitalization um, and anecdotally seemed to be beneficial, but we, we really weren't able to comment one way or the other what um, whether or not steroids were um, required for treatments. When we look at the cases that predated the Ivali outbreak, we found that there that there were only 16 cases, and that their presentations largely mirrored what we saw for the Ivali outbreak itself. Patients typically presented with several weeks of dyspnea and constitutional symptoms, and again were found to have those diffuse ground glass opacities on their imaging. Notably, however, these patients were really much less likely to have used THC-containing products. The majority of these patients had only used nicotine. And that raised the question whether there was some other common contaminants in these vape pen products or some different irritant altogether that was the underlying culprit. And the last thing I just wanted to mention was that we did find that there were four patients in total who had a constellation of findings that were most in keeping with an acute eosinophilic pneumonia pattern that you might expect to see with onset of conventional cigarette use. And these patients all predated the Ebola outbreak from last year, and they all responded to steroids, as you might expect with an acute eosinophilic pneumonia. And just to highlight a couple of really key takeaways from our work, one was that getting the clinical history will be imperative to identifying these suspected Ebola cases. And just as, as clinicians, we routinely ask our patients about their cigarette use. We would argue that it will be important moving forward to start routinely getting a vaping history from these patients as well. And that that clinical history combines with the key radiographic findings of these bilateral diffuse ground glass opacities are really going to be the two elements that underlie the diagnosis of Evali, and that further studies such as BAL might be helpful to exclude infectious etiologies, but we really don't feel that those are um, necessary unless it's felt to, unless the clinician, the treating clinician feels that that will be useful. And that lung biopsy itself is unlikely to add much with the, um, to the diagnosis for the majority of these cases. Yes, yeah, so I just want to unpack some of the, the, the data that you've given us and, and, and hopefully get your interpretation of, uh, of what your findings were. Um, so why do you think it's predominantly in young males? I think that we're seeing the we're, we're seeing Evoli primarily impact these young men because it reflects the demographics of patients who are most commonly using vape products. And I don't think it's necessarily that those patients have some predisposing factor. I think it's just that they're more common, more likely to be using these products. Gotcha. And then you'd mentioned that three quarters of them had gastrointestinal symptoms. And uh, that surprised me uh, as well, as you alluded to. And, and what kind of symptoms were they? And why do you think they having those symptoms? So the most common GI symptoms that we saw were nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. And when we take that hand-in-hand hand with the constitutional symptoms that these patients were having, it paints this picture of a pro-inflammatory state. I don't believe that there was anything, um, I don't believe that there was any sort of pathology specifically impacting the GI system, but I do believe that they were likely having 
an overall inflammatory reaction to the acute lung injury that they were suffering from that was leading to these GI symptoms. Gotcha, gotcha. And then you had mentioned uh, that you get ground glass infiltrates on uh, the CAT scan. And one thing that they noted in the early COVID patients was that they also have ground glass infiltrates, which is pretty nonspecific. Um, so how would you, in this day of age where we have both vaping and COVID-19, um, how would you separate those two out uh, on uh, history or examination, or would you just rely on the testing? I think that's a really excellent question. When we look at the incidence of patients coming in with Evali, there really did seem to be a, a peak in cases in the late summer of 2019. And since September, October of 2019, the number of cases that we're seeing has really dropped off. And I think that's a testament to the early physicians who recognized that this process was happening, alerted the public, and raised awareness. So people were able to modify their behaviors, either quit vaping or change their vape products. So we're really seeing um, much fewer cases of Evoli now. And my suspicion would be that if you have someone coming in with new hypoxia, new cough, new bilateral diffuse ground glass opacities, at this point in time, I think it would be reasonable to exclude covid first, and then really leaving these vaping-related lung diseases more as a diagnosis of exclusion, just given the lower incidence that we're seeing right now. Gotcha. And then from your literature review, I mean, you mentioned that uh, when they did bronchoscopies, they saw neutrophils, lymphocytes, macrophages, sometimes eosinophils. Uh, when they did the biopsies, uh, some of them had an organizing pneumonia picture. What is the postulated mechanism of injury um, that's causing EVALI? It's a great question, and a lot of different potential culprit agents have been proposed. Early on, seeing those lipid-laden macrophages raised that question of lipoid pneumonia, but of course, we are, we are missing the other key features that you would expect to see on biopsy or radiographically for lipoid pneumonia, which made that diagnosis much less likely. And the lipid-laden macrophages themselves were thought to be more a marker of irritation of the respiratory epithelium rather than the underlying uh, pathognomonic cause. Other possibilities that have been entertained include the vitamin E acetate, which has actually been found in the BAL of the majority of patients who were found to have Evoli. So certainly there's evidence that vitamin E acetate is present at the scene of the crime, but it's unclear whether or not there's a causation relationship there or whether or not it's a more bystander effect. It does stand to reason, though, that vitamin E acetate could be disrupting surfactant function and leading to this inflammatory cascade that we're seeing in patients. And given its chemical structure, it's been proposed that vitamin E acetate might actually be used as a dilutant in THC-containing vape pen products. Since it's a, a long-chain fatty acid, it can be used to dilute the THC-containing oils in these vape pen aerosols. So it's proposed that that patients that are using these counterfeit third-party vape pen solutions might be getting exposed to these unknown or previously unknown additives. 
there's been a number of possibilities that have been thrown out there. When we look at the pathology that we're seeing, um, it, as you said, it really is a wide variety of features. The lavages coming back are either neutrophil or macrophage predominant. We do have that minority of cases that were eosinophilic predominance. However, none of them were captured in the Evoli outbreak. And the pathology itself shows a wide variety of features from organizing pneumonia to inflammation, foamy macrophages, fibrinous exudates, and then diffuse alveolar damage that you might expect with a more typical ARDS. So it's hard to pin down one particular feature, but taken as a whole, it does seem that this supports an overall inflammatory process impacting the lungs. So how would you interpret that? Would that, in your mind, say that there's different uh, um, substances in the uh, the vape pen that's causing this injury, or um, is it the response by the uh, human host? Um, because it's, as you said, it sounds pretty heterogeneous. Yeah, this is, and this gets into some of the work done by the CDC, the very interesting work that they were doing, trying to really figure out what products were causing the Uvali outbreak. I understand that they had done very extensive interviews of impacted patients. They reviewed the different products that they had. Um, and tried to see if there was a common element and a common product that was impacting all of these patients. And it's it reveals just how complicated this world of vape pen manufacturing can be. Um, it quickly became apparent that some companies only produce vape pen packaging and not actually the vape pen aerosol or the vape pen device itself. And so you can have third-party sellers that will assemble different pens, different aerosols, and different packaging and then sell it. So it can be very hard to trace back where a contaminant might be introduced into those different supply chains and to then follow it to the user and ultimately, in our case, to the impacted patient. So this uh, story has became very convoluted. And um, it it gets into this question of how government regulation, how public policy can shift to better protect users of these different products to ensure that um, there's uh, safety and that we ensure safety for, for our patients and for, for the end users. So I uh, haven't followed this as closely as you have um, because of this recent COVID outbreak. And um, are you aware of any government regulations that came out uh, to uh, regulate how uh, the vape pens should be manufactured or, or, or any curtailing that they performed? So there's been widespread bans of particular flavors. I know that Trump very, uh, that President Trump very famously signed um, some of those. Um, if I could start over with this answer, I apologize. Sure, um, go ahead. So I know that there's been widespread regulation of what flavors are available, um, and there's been widespread condemnation of vape pen manufacturers for targeting these flavorful products, especially to the youth and to people under the age of 18. Um, and I know that there's still advocacy work ongoing to attempt to tighten those, re those regulations further. Gotcha. Um, so, Andrea, um what do you think is the cause that only, well, 
not only, I mean, 3% is a high uh, percentage uh, regardless, but why is it that only a small percentage of patients are getting, are dying from it? And do you think there's something protective uh, about, uh, in some patients that they're able to survive? Maybe it's dose-related that, uh, that a certain proportion of them end up dying from vaping. It's a fantastic question, and all I can do is speculate. We we know that the majority of patients who are using vape pen products are younger, and so it stands to reason that perhaps they have more physiologic reserve to withstand an insult, like a, an acute lung injury process, and they can better withstand a hospital stay or an ICU stay and intubation. But it remains to be seen whether or not there's underlying genetic causes that might predispose certain individuals. And it also remains to be seen whether having an underlying respiratory condition such as asthma might also predispose you to a worser outcome. We do have some reports of patients with asthma who use fate pens go on to develop status asthmaticus. So there is biologic plausibility there. Um, but it, at this time, we don't yet have enough data and that question also extends to whether or not vape pen use would portend worser outcomes among people who get infected with COVID. And right now, we just don't have the data yet to, to know. And I'd say that, that those studies are still on, ongoing, and we'll have to see what comes out in the natural history that we see over the next few months. Great, great. So I want to change tack slightly. Um, you had mentioned the importance of getting a vaping history uh, when you see these patients in clinic, and um, the, the number of clinicians uh, didn't train in the era of, uh, um, uh, of vaping. So what kind of questions do you ask your patients, um, and how do you go about having a discussion um, about vaping uh, in, a, in a young person? I think it's a, it's a really great question, and vape is, vaping is so new that even millennial physicians actually trained before vaping was very commonly um, used among youth. I, I typically go about asking about vaping the way that I ask about other illicit um, use. Not that vaping is illicit, but just in terms of collecting the information. I ask patients if they vape. Um, I'll ask them about other synonyms for vaping, such as using e-cigs. Um, you might find that in adolescence, they might call it puffing um, or puff bars um, would be other terminology that they use. I think it's important to ask how frequently they're vaping. Is this something that they're doing several times a day, several times a week? Um, you can also ask in terms of how, frequent, or how frequently they're changing out cartridges on their vape pen aerosol or on their vape pen devices um, and how big those cartridges are. There are different types of vape pens. Some of them have the small USB size cartridges cartridges. Others have, are called tank style, which will have much larger fluid reservoirs. So asking about the device that they're using, the size of the cartridge, how frequently they're swapping out those cartridges can give you an idea of how much vape pen exposure those patients are having. And it remains to be seen, but I do think it's worthwhile to ask what flavors they're using. We're finding that different flavor vape pens have different chemical profiles and we might find decades from now that patients who particularly use a, a certain flavor were being exposed to high doses of a, a chemical irritant. Um, for instance, diacetyl, which has, uh, which became famous as the presumptive causative agent of popcorn workers' lung disease, 
has been found to be in quite high concentrations in some vape pen solution flavors. And so we might expect to see that patients with chronic exposure to particular flavors will go on to develop bronchiolitis obliterans or other end-stage manifestations of lung disease. And then, I know with cigarettes, uh, you have to be over the age of, uh, I think it's 21 uh, in the United States, maybe 18, I'm not sure. Um, but for uh, for vaping um, or buying vape products, uh, is there a specific age that uh, kids are allowed to buy that? And um, if it, they aren't allowed, who's purchasing it for them? So federal law mandates that you be over the age of 21 to purchase any nicotine-containing product. And so Juul does require, Juul and other common vape pen manufacturers will require that people demonstrate that they're over the age of 21. It is worth noting that these Juul products, Juul being a very common and um, popular brand, are quite cheap. And so this is really a very accessible product for young people who might not have a lot of disposable income. They can purchase typically a, a Juul pen for under $20 and, and get started with use. Um, I imagine one can easily imagine that there are circumstances where upperclassmen in colleges are purchasing vape pens for underclassmen or for for younger siblings, and so there are avenues for people to illicitly gain access to these products. Gotcha. Um, so, Andrew, uh, moving on to uh, the limitations of your systematic review, you've given us a really good overview of your findings and uh, uh, what they signify. Maybe you could just share with our audience any limitations that you identified. Absolutely. So, any systematic review of such a novel and ongoing outbreak is bound to face limitations. And at the time that we are writing, Evoli was a subject of intense public and scientific interest. So as we were gathering and synthesizing information, new publications, new findings were continuously being produced in real time. So our process was highly dynamic, and we had to really continually evolve to ensure that we are providing the most up-to-date information possible. We also have to remember that at the time that we were writing, it was really unknown whether Ebali was due to an infectious agent versus some sort of chemical irritant, as we had discussed. And I'd argue that even now, much remains unknown about vaping-related lung disease. And there's really much more that we're going to see come out in the next few decades. The other thing to really keep in mind is that in writing this review that we recognize that there was really inherently going to be a publication bias as to which cases got reported. And we expect that more symptomatic cases to so sicker patients were more likely to get published and that the medical literature was really going to underrepresent those mild cases. And so accordingly, we expect that our findings reflect the more severe manifestations of vaping-related lung disease, the more severe manifestations of that spectrum. And we're, um, and we're only capturing those patients who presented to the ED, who recognized that there was a problem and potentially were admitted to the hospital. They suspect that there's a wide spectrum, a wide variety of disease severity, and that there's a considerable minority. Um, considerable majority of cases that are mild and might go unrecognized, might resolve spontaneously, and that's especially true since there was so much public awareness about vaping-related lung injury that a lot of people might have been um, modifying their behaviors, or if they had a cough, they might have stopped vaping and changed their product spontaneously and not actually presented for care. 
Yeah, so those are really important limitations that you highlight, especially the importance of publication bias. So let's move on to what you think um, your study uh, means for uh, the general population and for the medical field. Um, how does your study advance our understanding of vaping-related uh, lung injury, and how should it influence our clinical practice? Thank you. And I'd say the, the main thing that our study adds is calling into question vaping as a safe alternative for nicotine consumption. And it highlights that there is both a scientific and a clinical basis now to, to argue that there are downsides, there are potential sequelae of vaping that could impact respiratory health and could have chronic and long-lasting impacts. In our work, we talk about the scientific basis of vaping aerosols and show how it's a pro-inflammatory respiratory irritant. And we, we provide that overview showing how it can impact the respiratory epithelium, the alveoli, the bronchioles, and how it really it has far-reaching impacts on lung health. We also describe the clinical manifestations of vaping-related lung injury and show comprehensively how it been impacting patients from 2012 to the present, um, most notably during that outbreak from July to September. And we wanted to provide guidance to clinicians on recognizing vaping-related lung injury, informing them about the scientific basis for disease, and helping inform which diagnostic tests will be helpful, namely performing a CT scan, perhaps doing a BAL to exclude infection, and giving some context as the treatment options and knowing the data for how their patients might uh, might do. And looking a little bit more broadly, we wanted to inform the public discussion. And it's interesting because when you look back at actually old chess papers from the 1930s, you can see that physicians then were really debating amongst themselves about the potential impact of cigarette smoke and whether or not that could cause respiratory concerns. And there's very fierce debates that raged in the medical literature back and forth. And with the hindsight of, of 90 plus years, we can now say with certainty that cigarette smoke is harmful on respiratory health. And it just calls into question the debates ongoing now and what physicians 90 years from now will say about the debates that we're having now about vaping um, and what insights they'll have and what will unfold over the coming generations. And it's, it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit that many people might see vaping as a passing fad um, and not something worth devoting scientific energy to. But I would argue that as healthcare professionals, we really have to understand the habits and behaviors of our youth to understand where our field will be going. And as, as they might say, we have to skate to where the puck is going. And if, the, if young people are becoming addicted to nicotine in the vape format, then we might expect to see the sequela of vaping-related lung injury for decades to come. And it could really be impacting public health and our field. So laying that foundation of understanding now to either inform patients as they seek to achieve nicotine abstinence and being able to, to counsel them correctly is going to be incredibly important. I think that's very insightful on your part uh, on, on preparing for the future. So what studies, I mean, based on your 
uh, findings here and uh, your analysis. What, where were the gaps in the literature and what studies need to be done in the future to answer these pressing questions that you have? It's such a great question. I, everybody is, is so um, concerned about COVID right now appropriately, and we're very concerned about how our patients are going to fare should they, should they get a COVID infection. And I think that parallel to that work, the, the first thing that would be interesting to know is whether or not our, our young patients who otherwise might expect to have a very good outcome with COVID, does vaping impact those chances and would that allow us to really promote um, vaping cessation programs in high schools and colleges to encourage people to quit vaping while they have the chance um, to maximize their opportunity to have a good outcome should they become infected with COVID? So I'd say that that's really the first thing that comes to mind. But looking further out, I do think that there is a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done, not only at the basic science level, but also at the longitudinal cohort level to understand what impacts vaping can have on respiratory illness. And is there a new vaping-related lung disease, a new vape lung that will replace COPD as one of the primary causes of chronic respiratory poor health for our patients? So I, I think that remains to be seen and it'll be It'll be very interesting to see how, how that unfolds, and hopefully we can, as, as the public health researchers out there, can have some impact and pull some levers to mitigate the detrimental effects that might be seen. I agree, and uh, I, really, I definitely want to commend you and, um, for a really clear and lucid interview, and especially impressive, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, uh, you completing your fellowship, and uh, I'm really impressed with the work that you've done. Um, if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, uh, what are your plans uh, for research or clinical practice in the next few years? Yes, um, so first, thank you. And I will be graduating from fellowship uh, actually today and will be uh, staying at Stanford in a junior faculty position where I'll get to continue some of this work looking at at smoking-related lung disease, and then also understand how we can better integrate technology into our care pathways to help patients achieve better outcomes in their healthcare. Well, congratulations on completing your fellowship, and I think uh, Stanford have done a really great job um, in hiring you, and I wish you all the best. Um, Andrew, as we wrap up this podcast, I just want to ask you if there's any um, que- uh, any issues that we haven't covered um, that you felt that uh, our audience needs to know, um, and any uh, key message that you want to leave them with? Oh, thank you. I'd, I'd say a key message is recognizing vaping as as an emerging public health issue. I know that our country is facing a number of public health issues right now between COVID, between systematic racism. We have a lot on our plate to to attend to. And I, I think that as healthcare professionals, we have it within us to rise to the occasion and recognizing the threats that face our, our patients' respiratory health for decades to come is, is a unique burden that pulmonary and critical care physicians will, will have to, to bear. Great. And I'll look forward to seeing more of your work and uh, congratulations once again. Um, I would like to... Give Dr. Jonas a, a very big thank you for joining us and giving us such a, an impressive interview. And a very big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, 
And this is a chess podcast. 